0: This edition of Eternal Leadership has been brought to you by Marketplace Rock, a business of intercessory prayer for businesses. Learn more at marketplacerock.com. Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, co-founder and co-host. Here's this week's interview by my partner, John Ramstead.
1: All right, today podcast, we are going to have just a great topic today. I want you guys to stay engaged because we're going to, me and uh, my guest, Michael. Michael, welcome to the podcast, by the way.
2: Hey, so good to be here, John. Thanks for having me.
1: We have Michael bungay Steiner on who wrote The Coaching Habits. Say less, ask more, change the way you lead forever. Uh, Michael, this is one of the best books on coaching that I have read, and I've read a lot of them. And here's what I know, this is what I wanna share with everybody listening. I, I I have seen it in practice, coaching and having coaching skills and having a habit of coaching in your families, your organizations, your ministries, your, your work, is one of the most powerful forces for not only developing other people, but for good in the world that I believe exists that's out there. And, uh, you know, Michael, I'm so excited to have you on. First of all, you're from Australia. Well, Canberra
2: hey, we we're just talking about <laughs> what's that? Well, I was, just, I was just doing the Australian salute thing. Way. Yeah, exactly. I'm from Australia, <laughs> but in Canada now.
1: Yes, Canadian. Yeah.
2: You know, I'm actually, John, an international man of mystery. I carry Australian, British and Canadian passports, So I'm like a I'm like an unfit Jason Bourne. <laughs>
1: See, I have a, uh, I live in Denver, but I have to carry my passport to go up to Boulder, because it's a whole different world up there. (laughs) That's true. Now, uh, Michael was a Rhodes Scholar and went to Oxford, met his wife. Now, that's why he lives in um, Canada now, up in the the Toronto area. And you've just been, uh, you know, Michael, the way I would describe your life, uh, from what I know about you, is you're somebody who's just seeking to do good, have significant influence and be an impact player I know this book that you've written uh, just so everybody knows I do a lot of training for coaches executive coaches we train the US Air Force and on how to coach their managers and and I found Michael's book and I use it with the training that I do Uh, you also wrote a book called do more great work it's about how you connect your work to having that big impact and and you also, what I love about you, Michael, is you you walk the talk uh, you and Seth Godin got together, you wrote a book on end malaria, and through that project, I believe you raised just over four hundred thousand dollars that went to that cause. Is that correct
2: that's exactly right uh, I'll tell the quick story, John you know in do more Great work, one of the things we talk about, and we contrast that for good work. Is the work, the everyday work, the day that gets you, moves you forward, the day that gets you a quarter to quarter a result, the day that keeps you kind of day ticking over. So nothing inherently wrong with good work. But great work is the work that has more impact and the work that has more meaning. You know, it's that combination of things. And in the book, Do More Great Work, I actually say, look, one of the best things you can do is create a great work project. It kind of is a way of focusing and channeling your energy, your passion, your relationships. Um and what, I've, what I discovered is after I'd written that book, I'm like, you know what? I better I better do a great work project of my own <laughs> so I'm not one of these people who preaches and then doesn't actually follow up and does what I suggest. And and Malaria grew out of that desire to do a great work project of my own, and it was a very fulfilling project.
1: You know, we're in the middle of kind of uh, our team. It's kind of a vision God put on our hearts to touch a million people in a positive way to equip, to teach, train, equip, empower, and launch them into what they are meant to do, Michael. And we've called that Project 100. So our focus right now is how do we equip 100 leaders, coaches, people in different spheres of influence uh, to launch into what they're meant to do, where they can, 100 can touch 100 lives. That's 10,000 people. And if they all do the same thing, um, 100 times 100 times 100 is a million. And so that is actually just where we're starting I love and that. the traction we've gotten, the people that are part of this, the relationships this has opened around the world has just been absolutely a blessing for us.
2: Well, John, I know and we're going to jump into the book. I know that. But it's interesting how aligned the way we see the world is right away. Um, you know, the way I talk about it, this isn't meant to be a kind of boys comparing size thing. But it's, it's uh, for us, my personal mission is to infect a billion people with the possibility virus. So it's it's similar and different, right? For me, I go, look, I want people to have better lives and, and have lives of good. And if I can help people make better, more courageous, braver choices, that I think is going to help people have better lives and, and have the planet in a better state as well. So I can't literally go and talk to a billion people, even if I'm on the road you know, every day talking to large crowds. I'm never going to get to a billion people. But for me, the idea of the possibility virus is the way of what what can I put out in the world that might touch people, that might change the way that they see the world, that might help them make a better choice. And I'm trying to do that. And for me, it's also a great reminder to say I don't have to be in the center of things. Um, I don't have to be the bottleneck. If I can just put good stuff out there and put it in the hands of other good people, then that can make a really great impact. So. We're using the same mechanism and the same kind of vision to try and make this world a better place.
1: Yes, we sure are. And I'm glad you said that. Cause, and, and I think that is, that is what's so exciting for me about coaching, whether you're uh, you know, a coach and that's what you do for a living. Um, but what coaching is, it, it's a way, and we're going to talk about this, to have a conversation with somebody that is very different. And what it does, it equips them It empowers them. It helps them make some transformational changes, which is permanent Mm. changes with how they think and how they process what it does. It allows them when they get to that new situation or they're at a crossroads or there's a, a constraint that's holding them back or a new situation, they now have the ability to think, act differently in that situation that's going to yield better results, which then allows them to think better improve their thinking, improve their how they feel about things, improve the actions that they choose and then continue to keep improving even after they've had the interaction with us, either as a coach or somebody that has used coaching in our interactions with other people. Right, Michael?
2: I agree with that, John. I'm going to add a couple of things because it's a nice build on it. one of the reasons I think people resist being coaches, or as we put, tend to put it, being more coach-like, and, and what we mean by being more coach-like is, can you stay curious just a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving just a little bit slower? And people kind of nod their heads going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they nod their heads when they hear what you've just said, John, which is this is a way of empowering and supporting and encouraging and helping others step out to their, their full potential. But I think one of the things that gets overlooked and is really worth putting on the table is being more coach like doesn't just help others. It actually helps you as well. Mm, And it, it does that in a really practical, tactical way. And it's a part of what being more coach like does is it keeps responsibility for sorting out your life with the person whose life it is. <laughs> and what mm. most of us are is in the, with, the, with the best intentions, you know, whether you're a, a teacher, an executive, a pastor, your, your, your goal is to try and help others. You're driven by that sense of service. But sometimes the way we help people is not as helpful as we might think. You know, in all honesty, often our advice is not nearly as good as we think it is. And half the time <laughs> you're not even offering up the advice to solve the right problem. So being more coach like can actually make you more effective in the world and allow others around you to live more full, complete lives.
1: Yeah. And think about that. Everybody out there, you've probably gone to people, ask them a question. They tell you exactly what they think that you should do. And they didn't answer the question that you were really asking. But now kind of time's right. up. They're on to something else. They're busy. And you're like, OK, well, that that didn't help.
2: <laughs> exactly <laughs> i mean just i mean you can reverse this too. it's like think of all the advice you get during the day and how little of it you actually follow because a lot of it's not that great or that useful well that's how people feel about your advice as well so knowing that um and you know honestly one of the things is i'm, I'm betting almost everybody who's here on the podcast whether you are you know running your own business whether you're in organizations whether you're a coach yourself Part of it's like, I just have a really busy life. Like I've got too much to do. Um, John, I know you and I are both fans of Michael Hyatt. And, you know, he's, he's a great champion for the power of focus and the power of selective choice to do your great work. But one of the reasons you have too much to do is on your plate is actually doing other people's stuff for them. And being more coach-like allows you to disengage from overhelping and being less helpful than you're actually trying to be.
1: Well yeah, and and you know, to kind of frame this up, um, you know, why we need to develop a coaching habit. And you know, Daniel Goleman, who everybody who's in the coaching world is familiar with and, and what mm-hmm. he's written, uh, but you know, he wrote an article years ago about leadership that gets results. And he, he detailed right. six essential leadership styles. I know you talk about this in your book also, Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them that was shown to have a the most markedly positive impact on performance, culture, and bottom line is a coaching leadership style, but it was also what he found the least used leadership style. And why he wrote that was is that many leaders tell us they don't have time in this high-pressure economy for the slow and tedious worth, uh, work of teaching people and helping them grow. So with and that bet, kind of as a backdrop, mind, Michael, bear, why, what is it do you think is – you know what makes it so important about developing a coaching habit to overcome some of that inertia of our busy lives.
2: Well, bear in mind when Daniel Goldman wrote that it was two thousand or two thousand and one. So all of us who are now going two thousand life was easy then. We didn't have you know, the cloud. We didn't have ongoing connectivity. You know if, if he's going, it was too, we were too busy then. Think of how hard it is now. So John, I think we've got a couple of challenges one is we all feel busy we feel rushed we feel knocked off our feet we're just trying to get stuff done we're just trying to turn on top of the tsunami of stuff that's filling up our lives and this whole idea of being more coach-like because I'm not trying to necessarily turn anybody into a coach I'm trying to shift everybody to be more coach-like and it's a subtle distinction but an important one part of it is to actually start going okay so why do I love to give advice so much? <laughs> because here's what we found. We found most people are advice-giving maniacs. I mean, mm-hmm. they love it. Somebody starts talking to you, and within about 30 seconds, if not faster, you've already got the thing you want to tell them. You're like, okay, I'm nodding my head. I've, I've mastered fake active listening. But really, I'm just waiting for an opportunity to interrupt so I can get in and tell you what to do. Yeah, And And part of it is habit. So part of it is, you know, you've been actually encouraged and rewarded and supported for years to be the person with the answer. You know, from school to university into your career, you know, having the answer is puts you in like that's that's your job is to have the answer. Um, And of course, what you find is that as you try and become a more influential leader, having the answer is actually not the outcome you necessarily want. It's allowing others to find the answer. That's a subtly different goal. The other thing John is 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 more foundational, more and by foundational, I mean it's actually brain science. And it's this: the brain loves certainty and it dislikes uncertainty. And what that means is we actually have wiring that says that in many ways we love to give advice because when we give advice, we tick all sorts of neurological, Uh, I guess, drivers to make us feel better about ourselves. Because the the four main drivers that I think about that keep people engaged and make you feel good about yourself, they spell the acronym TERA, T-E-R-A, tribe, expectation, rank, and autonomy. And when you have, uh, when you're giving somebody advice, you have high rank, you have clear autonomy, you know exactly what's happening. It feels good to tell somebody what to do. You know, you feel like you're the big person in the conversation. You're adding value. And when you move to asking a question, because honestly, that's what that's the simple but difficult behavior change we're talking about, which is be curious a little bit longer. Ask a question and shut up and actually listen to the answer. When you ask a question, it's a less comfortable place to be because. You're not sure if it was the right question. You're not sure what they're going to say. You've given them control of the conversation. It's a much more ambiguous and uncertain place to stand. So part of you is going, oh, this is killing me, asking a question and then being quiet to listen to the answer. And of course, it only gets worse if they've had to wait one or two seconds to give you the answer. Then you really start panicking on the inside. But for me, John, this is what I would call a, kind of a really great example of servant leadership. Where you're willing to put your discomfort, your willingness to stay just briefly in a place of ambiguity and uncertainty, where you're willing to raise somebody else up to have higher status than you in service to enabling them to become more confident and more confident and have more impact and have more autonomy.
1: Well, I agree with that too, and you know, in the if you also look at it to kind of reframe that from from those of us that are in a leadership position. When we are spending our time, you know, giving direction and giving advice, are we really working in our strengths? And what would it look like if our entire team, we could could help them to teach them to use the knowledge they have, the experience they have, the tools that we have to put those together and delegate to them effectively and, you know, follow up with that process to the point where they are completely now empowered to do things autonomously without our direction and our input. Mm. As people move into developing this coaching habit as leaders, their effectiveness um, is just multiplied. So even though it might be counterintuitive to take some time to slow down, to ask some questions, to spend some more time with people, and we're going to talk about what some of those questions are uh, with Michael the outcome over time is phenomenal. And, and what, we, what I like to teach is the ratio of 30 to 1. If there is something I do every week that takes me an hour to put together, let's say it's a report, and I knew, Michael, that it would take me probably 30 hours to teach you how to do this, where to get all the inputs from, how to put it together, how to think mm-hmm. about it, how to process it. But if I invested 30 hours in you – to take one hour off my calendar. At the end of a year, let's say I'm working 50 weeks, I just got 20 weeks back, and then next year, I have all that time back, and I've also right. equipped you with a new skill that now you're doing, and you might even be able to do it better than I am. So yeah, I love it. that's a great way to think about it, that there is a huge return on investment of the time that we invest in our people, if we can invest our time in that people effectively and productively that that serves them like you said michael right in that role of a, a servant leader leader which is really how do we help our people do something important to them important and and important to our organization there's kind of a double win if you can do it that way
2: and and the only issue i'm going to take up with you here john is the fact that you're saying to people work 50 hours a week that's a very united states way of thinking about it i'm like work 48. Well, I, you know hours what i
1: meant to, to say is 50 <laughs> weeks uh, i'm sorry 50 weeks a year
2: uh, yeah, exactly. I'm going forty eight weeks a year or forty six <laughs> weeks a year. It's like embrace the European way of thinking about vacation and take more time off. That's a that's that's another story, but you know, anyway. But I agree with you. Well, you know, I saying.
1: gotta tell you, you know, the goal of our company as we're setting things up, our goal, which we're we're doing we're starting to do very successfully, is take one day off a week, one week off a month. And then one full month off every year, where we can be gone from the organization without it skipping a beat. I love that that's that's what're that's what we're working on creating.
2: I heard that I heard somebody else talking about that structure who Who did you get that from? or did you come up with that yourself?
1: That was from Charles Brinkman, and he wrote a book called "Making Money is Killing Your Business." It's a phenomenal <laughs> book. I'd recommend it to everybody.
2: I love the title of that. That's great.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about this. So, um, what are you know? If you think about it, you've worked with a lot of people that have probably you know maybe tried to develop a coaching habit. They've um, they've had you know maybe mediocre results. So you know it's they're not continuing down that path. Are, are there some things that you've seen some common uh, things that people do that maybe prevent them from doing this well, Michael?
2: Yeah. I think a big part of it is well, there's a number of different things, and of course, just so people know, John's setting me up to to get on a soapbox to talk about coaching and how people learn to be more coach-like and the like. So this <laughs> yes, is my I opinion. Am. Don't take don't don't take it as the truth, but I, I have some I do have some strong opinions around this. Um, the first thing that I think stops most managers and leaders. Um, becoming more coach-like because that's the goal we don't really want them to be coaches we're just being more coach-like is that coaching actually arrives with a whole bunch of baggage for most people now if you're like john and me you've kind of drunk the so-called kool-aid on this and we're like we love coaching we think it's awesome it's fantastic we've read the daniel goldman article we've read all the coaching books but most people, normal people are like, I don't know, I've met some coaches, I'm not sure I want to Not sure I need to be like that. I'm kind of happy the way I am. I don't even want to be a coach. I just want to try and be good at my job. I want to enjoy what I do. I want to make a difference in the world. I want my team to be happy and engaged and fulfilled. And this idea that coaching is not the outcome you care about, it's a process to get you somewhere that's about you and about your organization is the, is the first way of reorienting and thinking differently about this. The second thing I believe is, and there's a ton of research around this, the reason why most managers and leaders don't coach, aren't more, aren't, choose not to be more coach-like, is that they feel they just don't have time for this coaching stuff. And it connects into some of the stuff we've talked about earlier about people feeling very busy. But people look at it and go, wow, you know, you say HR or, or senior person, you know, you need to be a coach now. But I'm already working 50 hours a week and 60 hours a week. And I only have two weeks vacation per year. And honestly, I take my gadget with me when I go on vacation as well. I don't have time to add coaching onto what I already do. And the metaphor we share is this, which is we're not trying to get you to add anything to anything. We're trying to transform what you currently do. You know, we're not trying to pour water into a full glass. We're trying to change the color of the water in the glass you're already holding. And our other belief is this, that if you can't coach somebody in 10 minutes or less, you don't have time to coach. So part of this is disrupting the I think the kind of the myth that arrives from probably executive coaching, which is, you know, a coaching session takes at least half an hour, involves you coming into my office and us sitting down and doing the coaching before we break up. And then, you know, we don't talk about it again for another two weeks. Whereas for us, our three principles are be lazy, be curious, be often and be lazy. And this kind of connects right back to what we were talking about before, which is to say, look, stop jumping in and fixing things and solving things and trying to do it all for the other person. Being curious is about the advice monster that we talked about before. Stop rushing to advice, stop leaping into telling people what to do. And being often is to recognize that every interaction with somebody can be a bit more coach-like. So whether you're talking to them in a regular one-to-one meeting, chatting with them on IM or text or email, on the phone with them, all of those conversations can be a bit more coach-like. And then if you've got those as kind of the principles, then you go, okay, so how? Okay, give me some tools that will help me with this. And what we've done in the Coaching Habit book, and again, John, I really appreciate the nice words about it, is we've said, look, if you have seven good questions, that can be enough to carry you a long way down the path to be a really much more effective manager, leader, human being. We don't really teach coaching models we don't really spend any time explaining why coaching is a good thing. We're like, just let's jump into it. Here are seven good questions. If you've got these seven questions, you're going to go far.
1: Well, I love that framework, right? That I love that. Be lazy, <laughs> be curious, and be often. And, you know, what I'd like to do is take, you know, in the time that we have left, is maybe just touch on what these seven questions are, Michael, so. And I would just really encourage people to get this book and read through it. And if you're on a management team, and I've had some clients do this, Michael, I encourage them to read this book as a team so they're starting to use these with each other, to hold each other accountable, to build that relationship, to build that habit. Because if, I believe if you can build some habits, way uh, number one, of an affirming culture where you're affirming people. And number two, uh, people in leadership that have a coaching habit there is very few organizations that can't accomplish in my opinion pretty some pretty extraordinary things.
2: No, I totally agree with you. So let's jump into these seven questions because I bet there's you know a bunch of people who are like come on guys you keep talking about these seven questions. Yeah, give me the Tell goods, us what the man. seven questions are. <laughs> so let me start off with what we call the coaching bookend. So this is question number 1 and question number 7 in in the book and might be a really nice thing that people can take away as an initial habit to think about building into this so the the, the first one the kickstart question as we call it is all about getting into the interesting conversation much more quickly because there is always a, a place for small talk in organizational life but so often we're into a co- let's call it a coaching conversation and you know you put aside 30 minutes first 25 minutes have somehow been chit-chat and now you're kind of panicking on the inside going, we only got four minutes left. When are we going to get into the real thing here? Or maybe you run new one-to-one meetings that you have with your team and you're like, "Ah, you know, they're okay, but, you know, the other person kind of reports out what they're doing and you're kind of nodding to encourage them and it's a bit boring for them and it's a bit boring for you. And the kickstart question is about how do you accelerate more quickly into a juicy conversation? So the kicks out question, here it comes, is what's on your mind? What's on your mind? And the reason I think what's on your mind is such a good question is it does two things. It says to the other person, you get to choose what we talk about here. You get to actually uh, pick the conversation rather than me telling you what the agenda is. But it says to them, don't talk to me about anything. Don't talk to me about everything. Talk to me about the thing that you're excited about or worried about or waking up at four o'clock in the morning about. Talk to me about the thing that's present and big and getting in your way of being a more effective person in your life. And what I found is by starting with what's on your mind, you just kind of you get into it. You're into the real conversation almost right away.
1: I could agree more. And actually, when I you know, when I read that, I I just love that um, because I always have a couple opening questions. But when I first read that, I was actually at a networking event that night at the National Speakers Association, our, our local chapter. and yeah. I was there with a, a, a woman who I, I, I kind of knew, not really, just you know from a couple meetings. But I asked her, we started chatting, and I just said, hey, what's on your mind? And she looks at me, she goes, really? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and she started sharing with me about this project. She was totally stressed and this big gap that she had on how to get from here to there. And if she shared that, guess what, Michael? I knew somebody to connect her with that helped her solve the problem. And asking that question allowed me to add value and serve her and it created a, a friendship and a relationship that didn't exist. And I think it really came down because I asked that simple question uh, to open a conversation. And it really got th- – you know, that's also part of this too, right? In coaching, we're, we're also – we're focusing on them, mm. not ourselves. And that is where we're coming from. So when you say curiosity – it's a curiosity about them, what they're thinking, what, what's going on, what's the question behind the question, the reason behind the reason, and in an opening like this, really kind of gets to that meaningful place quickly.
2: Yeah, and uh, and I love that you used it in a networking event because honestly, most networking events are kind of death by banal questions. You know, you, you trade stuff that you're not really interested in in terms of topics and conversation. And this is a great way of jumping into something juicy. So great story.
1: Well, you know, I've but, changed my entire approach. When I go to a networking event now, which I don't do a lot of, but my goal is to go and have one, maybe two meaningful conversations. If I meet somebody that has could never be a client, uh, probably couldn't refer me business, but we're actually having a, a meaningful conversation, that was a w- total win for me because it's about developing relationships and adding value to folks. Love it. All right. So now you talked about the bookend. So let's go. We're going to jump to number seven, I guess, unless there's something else on the kickstart you wanted to mention.
2: No, I think that's a good covering of the kickstart. So the seventh question is the learning question. And this is such a powerful question, because one of the things that I'm speaking to everybody who's listening at the moment, one of the, the roles in your life is to be a teacher. Whether you're a manager, whether you're an executive, whether you're a coach, whether you're a pastor, it doesn't matter. Your job is to help people learn because that's the way knowledge that gets transmitted. That's the way we all get smarter. That's the way we become more confident and autonomous and self-sufficient, all that good stuff. But here's the challenge. You need to understand how people learn. And annoyingly, for most of us, people do not learn when you tell them stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's it's true, but it's, it is annoying. But, you know, you give, tell most people something, you give them advice, and it kind of goes in one ear and out the other ear. I mean, and you know this to be true, because think of all the advice that you've just plum forgotten over the years. And people don't actually learn that much by even just doing the thing. I mean, they do a little bit, but they don't at a deep level. They learn by reflecting on what, just happened so the learning question is all about creating those moments of reflection so people see the lesson and extract the value from the conversation so there's there's some variations on this one but the one that I ask most often is what was most useful or most valuable here for you what was most useful or most valuable here for you and it has a a three-part use to it the first is you're forcing them to to dig into that conversation and go, oh, okay, what was useful and valuable and to figure that out. And the actual figuring it out is actually where the new neural connections get made. Secondly, of course, you get feedback. You get feedback so that you actually learn what you did that was more useful and more valuable so you can do more of that next time. And thirdly, you get to actually frame every interaction with you as a useful valuable interaction so that makes just the whole relationship you're in that much better because you're priming them to say this is a useful valued treasured relationship that you have now now like i say you can you can play around with variations on this the the key thing you want is to have people reflect on what just happened so Yeah, if I was working with John and he was still in his fighter pilot days and he'd gone on a training flight, at the end of that, if we were debriefing, I might say, so what do you know now that you didn't know before? And that's going to force him to kind of review what just happened and kind of extract the new, the knowledge, the insight that he might otherwise have missed.
1: You know, it's interesting. Uh, one of my clients and close friends, he's a, um, He's a performance coach. He just works with elite professional athletes, NBA, MLB, professional golf. And what he talked to me about, Michael, is one of the things that he focuses on, uh, whether their performance relative to how they viewed it was good or bad, but he always talks to them about what did you learn? Because when we're focusing on, like you talked about, for people to create that self-awareness, that mindfulness of what that is, now they're actually yeah. focusing, focusing things on a positive way. So instead of maybe comparing myself to somebody else, I'm completely now looking at how do I compete with my best self, improve upon myself, how do I take that learning and next time you know, use it, do better. But if we just gloss over it and we don't um, have that conversation about what that new learning was, like you talked about, it's just, it just it just passes out. It doesn't connect. It's not there for them to use next time.
2: Yeah, I mean, it connects to stuff like, uh, uh, I don't know if you know this book, Dan Coyle's book, uh, The Talent Code, where he's like, why do some people seem to, why do some areas seem to accelerate talent more than others? You know, why does one tennis court in Russia seem to produce so many champion women tennis players? Why does one part of South Korea produce so many champion women uh, golf players? And part of it is a sense of deep practice. And what that means is a deliberate process to learn as you go along rather than just practice for the sake of getting, you know, logging up hours. And, you know, I'm just I'm just violently agreeing with you here, John. So I'll just be (laughs) quiet. (laughs)
1: That's awesome. So we did the bookends. What's your question number two?
2: Well, question number two. And this is a great question to share because we call this the best coaching question in the world And it's a big claim for a small question because that question is just three words. And the question is, and what else? And of course, you you can probably guess, John, every time I announce this as the best coaching question in the world, people get a little kind of excited about it. And then there's a slight anti-climax when I tell them it's and what else. But here's why it's so powerful. The first answer somebody gives you is never the only answer. And it's rarely the best answer. So what and what else does is allows you to deepen and kind of extract more value from any other question. So if you ask somebody, so what's on your mind, you go, good, and what else is on your mind? And is there anything else on your mind? Or if you ask people what was most useful and valuable here for you, you go, great, what else was useful or valuable? Lovely, what else was useful or valuable? Great, is there anything else here useful or valuable? And you see how this now becomes a more interesting conversation because they're actually digging deeper and you're forcing them to think. The other real power of and what else, and this connects back to those three principles, be lazy, be curious, be often, is it's a self-management tool. Because so often after people have given you their first answer, you're like, oh, that's awesome. I was awesome. I asked a question. They gave me an answer. We can move into action now. And actually, you're trying to slow down the rush to action and advice giving. Mm -hmm. So now this is all about going, right, done that. What's the next question It stops you jumping in to fix things, solve things, and helps you stay a little lazier a little more often?
1: You know, along that point, it, it reminds me of a, a client I was working with. He was an executive, and he showed up, and he wanted to talk about, in a coaching session, about how to lose weight. He was overweight and had never been able to get the weight off. And, you know, that was what was on his mind. And right. he shared he wanted to lose weight. And so my question was, and what would that give you? So it's kind of another version of this. And I felt like we really haven't landed yet. I I think I asked that question literally 11 times. We finally got something that was so connected to his beliefs, his values, and his passions. It was emotional. He was in tears about actually losing weight, would actually do this in his life and facilitate something that had never happened before on a relationship side that he not only dropped the 50 pounds, but for the last two years, he's not only kept it off, but now uh, everything that he talked about that it would give him two years ago when we were having this conversation has now come to be. And that's so awesome. th- think about that as far as uh, being a catalyst, this simple question to create some really powerful learning and visioning for you know moving forward for people also.
2: Yeah, that's fantastic. It's a great story.
1: All right, what's number three, Michael?
2: So number three, we call the focus question. And the key insight here is that the first challenge that shows up is almost never the real challenge. Mm -hmm. And again, this is just a great insight that connects to that, uh, how seductive that rush to action and advice giving can be. But when you have in your heart and your head that the first challenge is perhaps not the real challenge you start realizing that you offering up solutions and advice to solve this not correct challenge is a waste of everybody's time. So the focus challenge is a way of actually digging deeper into what really needs to be figured out here. And the question is, what's the real challenge here for you? And how I say that actually really matters. Um, So watch how I build this up because you'll see how the question gets stronger. Mm -hmm. You could ask somebody, so what's the challenge here? And that's okay, but honestly, if you ask somebody what's on your mind and then said, so what's the challenge here, you'd probably get a bit more of the same when you ask them that. It becomes a better question immediately when you ask, so what's the real challenge here? Can you see how by saying what's the real challenge, you're saying to them there's more than one challenge going on, so what do you think the real challenge is? So already now they're working harder. If they're working harder, you're getting to be lazy. They're getting to learn and be smarter. Perfect. Perfect. But I think the question really gets juiced when you say, what's the real challenge here for you? And what's brilliant about that is adding for you onto this question and onto almost lots of questions is it swings the spotlight away from the challenge and to the person solving the challenge. So, for instance, if I was talking to John and John was going, "Oh," and I said, John, so what's the real challenge? Uh, what's the real challenge here? And John goes, oh, Tammy on my team, she's terrible, you know, blah, 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 she does this, she does that, she's destabilizing. And I'm like, okay, but John, what's the real challenge here for you? John goes, ah, you know, my challenge is I need to fire Tammy, but I don't have the backbone to actually have that conversation, that difficult conversation with her and let her go. And by shifting the spotlight from the challenge to the person dealing with the challenge, the whole nature of the conversation changes and it becomes a much more powerful conversation.
1: Yeah. And, you know, in the context of an organization, we talked about how busy we are. We're always focusing on getting stuff done, the transactional side of things. Yeah. And what this does, you know, as as part of a habit is – gets the people that we're interacting with whether they're peers on a team or a team that we're leading focused on the right things you know the things that are really at the root cause versus maybe dealing with a symptom that could be easier like you were talking about it might be easier for me to complain about tammy or counsel tammy or talk to hr about tammy when what i really need to do is maybe let her go
2: and Part of what this does. So a bunch of people listening to this, whether, you know, if you're in the executive world, maybe in the coaching world, you may have heard of a kind of variation on this called the five whys. You go why, and then you go why, and then you go why, and then you go why. And then that's a nice way of getting down to kind of root cause analysis, what's really at the heart of this. The challenge with the why question for most of us in everyday life is that when you ask somebody why. It's very hard to ask that question in a way that actually lands without it sounding accusatory in some way, I like agree, sort yeah. of why the, why the heck are you doing this, basically. And the other challenge with why is often it's asking for a, it's, give me some history on this. Now, the thing is, the only reason you would need history, the only reason you'd need more data is so that you could then go, I'm going to solve this because I've got better information, But if you say to yourself, look, I'm a lazy coach now, I don't need to do that, that why question, that why process, you don't need that. But what's the real challenge here for you is trying to get to the same piece, which is let's get a little deeper as to where the real issue really lies.
1: Well, I I agree. And so, you know, just these first three questions for people just to start developing, you know, a coaching habit, I think is really powerful you know, opening up what's on your mind. Is there anything else on your mind? So what's the real challenge? I kind of like how you do you ask that in two parts? What's the real challenge? And then follow up with what's the real challenge for you, Michael? I kind of like that.
2: Yeah, you could do that. I tend to just jump right into. So what's the real challenge here for you? Because it's like I'm trying to coach in 10 minutes or less. So let's go for it. Let's just get deep as fast as we can.
1: And these aren't sequential, like if you ask somebody, right, what, what's the real challenge here for you and they share it for you, you can jump right back to and what else, can't you?
2: Exactly. I love that you picked that up The The seven questions, they, they kind of go in a, in, a, in a flow. So if you go one through seven, you'll see how that works. But the truth is, your goal is to ask the best question you can figure out when it's needed and you can pull these questions in any time.
1: This is awesome. Love this. Now, what's number four, Michael?
2: Number four, you know, that is a good question. I'm going to do you have it in front of you? Foundation, I the
1: foundation, ah, question. foundation
2: question? Yeah, thank you. I should know that. I'm embarrassed. Um, simple, difficult. The question is, what do you want? And actually, one of the ways this is most powerful is, again, a self management tool. When you feel discombobulated, when you feel angry and frustrated and confused, whatever it takes, if you ask yourself, what do I want here? It's actually a way of getting really grounded as to what the best next step might be. Mm-hmm. Turns out most of us aren't very good at knowing what we want and we're not very, you know, kind of what we really want. It's like, what's the challenge here for you? What's the real challenge here for you? What do you really want? Get clear on that. And so many things fall away as you get laser focused on the stuff that matters.
1: You know, I think, yeah, like, this starts to clear up maybe uh, expectations too. Like I might think this is why Michael's asking this and maybe his agenda or maybe this is what this is going to do for him. So I'm that, what that always does, especially if I'm in advice giving mode, that's going to create a context of how I'm answering. And that's, you know, that's going to be wasted energy and effort because I'm not really connecting to what you really want. Maybe what's the reason you're asking the question.
2: Yeah, exactly. So, really powerful to, um, uh, you know, I uh, once heard Peter Block, who's a great writer and thinker in this space, talk about why he does the work he does in organizations. And he says, I'm trying to help, I'm trying to give people responsibility for their own freedom, which is a really powerful phrase, I think. And, you know, a a simpler way, perhaps, of explaining that is to help people develop adult-to-adult relationships, and when I'm asked, what, what does that even mean? What is an adult-to-adult adult relationship? One of the things that I say is, is being able to ask for what you want, knowing that the answer may be no. And, and I just, just repeat it. I think lots of us do a poor job at figuring out what it is that we actually want. And a not great job at asking for what we want. Not a great job at saying yes, no, or maybe to somebody asking us for what they want.
1: And something I would like to interject in here, too, especially these last two questions, you know, what's the real challenge for you? What do you want? When we ask this question, we have to be comfortable with silence. Mm. These I have seen people, especially maybe if they're an internal processor, literally take 20 or 30 seconds to process and think before they start talking. And you just have to have that patience and wait. Because if you interject because you're not comfortable, you're going to take away what's, you know, the what, what's happening. Don't you think, Michael?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, throughout the book, you know, there are these seven questions and the first chapter is actually about um, how to build a habit. But in between each chapter are like seven or eight specific tips around here's how you actually ask a question. Well, and silence is definitely one of those tactics.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the most powerful tools we have for a coaching habit. Now, number five, you call the lazy question.
2: Yeah, so the lazy question, and it will sound contradictory when I say it, but the lazy question is, what do you want? Oh, no, it's, sorry, I'm getting caught up in my own head. It's how can I help? Mm-hmm. How can I help? And I know when I say that, it doesn't really sound like that's an invitation to be lazy. It sounds like it's an invitation for somebody to tell you a whole bunch of stuff you have to do. But what we're trying to do is slow down people to rushing into action. And so many of us just leap into action before we even know what the challenge is. And asking what, how can I help or more bluntly, what do you want from me? is actually a way to make sure you understand what their request is before you move to action. And know this, when they say, when they answer that question, you know, what do I want? What do you want from me? You don't have to say yes to that. You get to say no, or maybe, or perhaps. But um, getting clear on that is—it's like a break towards your own inbuilt rush into getting things done.
1: When you ask that question, "How I can help?" and they explain that to you, you can ask more questions. What would that do for you? What yeah, is the reason so- that you know you think that is most helpful? Because when I'm having this coaching conversation, my goal is also to identify gaps, especially if a leader, where maybe this person, maybe they need some more knowledge or they need some more experience, some more training, or they maybe need a different tool set to do their job. So I'm also listening from that perspective in questions like this about where this person at is in their personal and professional development and are there opportunities that's coming up from this conversation that i'm getting new learning out of on how i can serve maybe them or my whole team even better
2: yeah i love that because
1: i might think they might you know what why are you asking me to do that this we've talked about this we've had meetings and trainings on this and you should you should knock this one out of the park and you're like okay well this is a note to self when you hear some of this it's like a, a feedback loop for ourselves as leaders
2: nice i think that's exactly right um So much of this, and I love that you're pointing to this, is about trying to get out of our own way of thinking, look, I'm the smart person with the answer here. Just do what I have to tell you. Asking questions allows not only those other people to be more self-sufficient and autonomous like we've talked about, it helps you actually calibrate just how much you know and how much you don't know. I tend to think the best leaders have a grasp on just how little they actually know, (laughs) how little is certain, how much is uncertain. Um, but it also allows you to not fill in the space for that other person. It allows them to do their work. So you have space to do the work that matters most to you.
1: Now, number six, the strategic question. What is that, Michael?
2: And that's a, a perfect question to start wrapping it up. Because I'm, I'm looking at a clock. I know we're almost at half past the hour. And I, embarrassingly enough, I have another interview coming up. So this is the perfect way to wrap it up because – The strategic question is about choices and about opportunity cost. And here it is. If you're going to say yes to this, what must you say no to? And I've said yes to another interview in four minutes. So I'm going to have to say no to a five minute excess add on (laughs) to this interview. Because in some ways, what strategy is, is that making the choice about what you want to say no to, even though you don't really want to say no to it, because most of us, Uh, very good at adding on to what's already on our plate, even though it leaves us in a state of even more and greater overwhelm than it's already there. So what this question, what are you going to say? If you're going to say yes to this, what must you say no to? If you're going to say no to this, what must you say yes to? What that does is it makes that opportunity cost more obvious. It makes the what is the real cost? What's the real price you pay for committing to this? And if you don't make those changes, how weak that yes is. Because if you have a yes without an, without some no's around it, you lose your sense of shape and your sense of form. Yes,
1: yeah, so we should say yes more slowly. In most cases, a lot of us are, are, are need a 12-step program for being people-pleasers. <laughs> so, you know, as we wrap up, to respect your time, Michael, what are just a, a couple of thoughts you'd like to close with? And then just how do people, uh, you know, connect with you, get in touch with you?
2: Yeah. Thank you. So, um, a couple of thoughts. The first is always, you know, never take anybody else's advice too seriously, especially this advice I'm about to give you. Um, <laughs> cause it's just, it's just one person's point of view around it. Um, but I guess it's, I guess it's this, if you're looking to really transform the way you show up as a leader, as a manager, as a human being in your life, it's not a problem of knowledge. You already know a bunch of stuff. And listen to podcasts like John's and others. You, you, you know a bunch of stuff. We've just given you seven awesome questions. So you know great stuff. What's hard is not knowing stuff. It is, it's not the knowing. It's the doing. Mm. And if you really want to shift the way you show up in the world, you have to understand what it takes to change your behavior. And I think habits are at the heart of behavior change. So, John, you asked about where people can find me. We have a website for the book. It's called thecoachinghabit.com. There's actually a report there called the Six and a Half Habit Gurus. And if you really want to understand what it takes to crack forming a new habit, it's a it's a free ebook, a free report that people can download. And they can actually download the first two or three or four chapters, I think, of the book as well. So thecoachinghabit.com is a place for them to go. And for those people who are interested in uh Our approach to coach training, and I know John's got his own approach as well. So, you know, after you've checked out John's, um, our approach to uh, how to help managers be better, more effective coaches is found at boxofcrayons.com.
1: And there's also, I'd recommend Box of Crayons for coaches, Michael, there are just some phenomenal videos and resources and programs that you have. You guys have just done just some great work in this whole world to really, you know, to serve people into creating this coaching habit and people that can bring this into an organization. And we define that as two or more people with a common purpose. It could be your family, working with your teenage kids, your ministry, your business, a club that you're a part of. Uh, you're going to see, I'll guarantee you, you'll see better results. So Michael, thank you so much for your time. I truly appreciate you and the work that you're doing. If there's anything I can do for you, please let me know, my friend.
2: Oh, it's been a real pleasure. This has been a great conversation. Thanks for having me along. Thanks for listening to
0: Eternal Leadership. Be sure to check the summary of this MP3 for any important links and a link to the show notes for this episode. As I said at the top, this edition of Eternal Leadership has been brought to you by Marketplace Rock. Is there something that feels like it's blocking your business? The team at Marketplace Rock partners with you and unearthing those things that could be holding you back through intercessory prayer. Just earlier this year, Vicki told me while she was praying, she heard from me to water the seeds. I knew exactly what it meant and got some business out of it. Another time she was praying and accurately described one of our dogs who turned out needed medical attention. John and I can't recommend the team at Marketplace Rock highly enough. In fact, our phone calls with them are the highlight of our week. Visit them online, marketplacerock.com, or listen to either of Amy Everett's past interviews with us, episodes four and 66, marketplacerock.com. For John Remstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership.